Today we are in Acts chapter 18, verses 24, through chapter 19, verse 10. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into the, what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning, even if at first glance we're not quite sure why we're hearing it. And so, Lord, would you come and make the, the ground of our hearts fertile? As, Lord, you have invited us into a place of worship where we got a very big picture of your goodness, of your majesty, of your grace, of your plan for redemption that includes us. Would you now, Lord, speak in such a way that all of us can hear? Would you convict of sin? Would you encourage in righteousness? And Lord, would you cover us and fill us with your love? Come, Holy Spirit. We're in desperate need of you more than anything else. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so kids, uh, we've got some of our younger kids with us this morning. Kids, uh, if you're in here, I'm going to need your help with our opening illustration. But really, this is for everyone to, to answer, okay? So here's the question. Who wants to keep growing? By show of hands, who wants to keep growing? Uh, Liam, you can put your hand down. You're tall enough, buddy. <laughs> who, okay, thank you for your honesty. So how tall do you want to be is the question that I want to ask. Do you want to be Stephen Huang type tall? which is like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, Liam Reinmuth, which is like 6'1 and a half since I'm 6'2". 
Or do you want to be one of the J's, Jane or Joyce, who's like, you know, five, five-ish, right? How tall do you want to be? That's the question. Do you know how tall you want to grow? Liam keeps saying six, five, six, six, something like that. He wants to be the tallest in the family. Okay. Well, the question becomes, what do you need to grow this tall? Right? Like you see these guys, they're cool because they're tall. No, that's not true. But they are cool because they've got these glasses on. The answer to how tall you want to be is directly proportionate to the size of your roots. Now, I, I don't know if, if you've seen this incredibly awkward picture of Stephen and Liam before, but I figured I'd share it this morning as a way to encourage my shorter son. Um, if you notice, the size of Stephen's feet are enormous. And if you've gone through puberty or if you have kids who are about to, if you're younger here and you're like, I want to grow tall, I want you to know this, God has a funny way of growing your roots before he grows your branches, right? So your feet get really big and you're not quite sure how to walk around and that's all so you can grow up into your feet. So the size of your roots is going to be directly proportional to the size of your branches. You cannot grow tall without deep or big roots. You following? The other part of growing, however, is a willingness to change. This is Liam at four, and this is Liam at 17. A lot has changed, and yet some hasn't. He has the same exact haircut, I can see, right? Uh, he still has the same smile, the same glow in his eyes, right? But he doesn't wear a whole lot of Iron Man t-shirts anymore. Right? Like some of his preferences has, have changed. The way that it's come out of his heart has changed. But I can tell you that what's rooted in his heart hasn't changed. Because the very reason why he loved Iron Man is because he has eyes to see those in need and wants to help. And that has only grown as he's gotten older. And so there needs to be a willingness to grow and change, to change as you grow, right? Because growth is change. But none of us like change. We're afraid of change. We like things the way that they are. But if you want to grow, you have to take the risk of change. Now, realize that even as you take that risk, your roots don't change, right? The, the core of who you are doesn't change. When we're talking about our body, we're talking about our DNA, right? DNA will remain the same. No, no matter how hard he tries, he'll never get rid of his Rhymeuth DNA, right? He will always be a Rhymeuth because he's my son, that's inside of him, it doesn't change. No matter how hard he tries, he, he, will never, he will only ever be a male. Why? Because it's written on every chromosome in his body. He, that is who he is and it will not change. In the same way that he cannot change his eye color. He can wear contacts all he wants, but he will always have hazel eyes. It is rooted in his DNA, in the chromosomes that make him who he is. Liam's left-handed. No matter how hard he tries, and he does try because he wants to be able to use both hands as a basketball player, he'll only ever be left-handed. Are you getting it? There's a rootedness to what it means to be you that never changes. But as you grow, the way that comes out of you, the practice of that principle can change and oftentimes does change. The question for us this morning then is do you want to grow? Are you rooted? And as you're rooted, are you also willing to change? That's a real question for you to ponder and to begin chewing on even as we begin our time unpacking this passage together this morning. Do you want to grow? You, many hands went up. You thought we were talking about vertically, and that might be true. But do you want to grow in your heart? 
into the person that God has made you to be. Because if you do, being rooted and being willing to change, both of those realities must be true in your life. This is where we're going as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Acts. We've been in for a few months now, unpacking this mission of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ, empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit. Here's our theme for this morning. Growing as a Christian is a process that challenges our practices with firmly rooted principles. Growing as a Christian is a process that challenges our practices with firmly rooted principles. Three points, the roots, the challenge, and the growth, okay? First point, the roots. You see it in our text that Christian read for us with Apollos. Apollos is a guy that, he, the passage tells us that he's a Jewish missionary to Ephesus from Egypt. He was probably, uh, we don't know how long he was located in Africa, which is Alexandria or Egypt, right? We don't know how long he was there, how many generations of his family were there. Perhaps he moved there during the diaspora when uh, the, the, the Roman Caesar told all the Jews to leave Rome. Perhaps he, he was part of what happened centuries earlier when Israel was conquered and the Jews spread all over the known world. We don't know the answer to that question, but what we do know is he lived there, but he was Jewish, and as a Jew, he became a Christian. So let me just highlight a point we've made several times so we don't miss it again. All the first Christians were Jews. In fact, all the Jews around them and those who were Christians believed that to be Christian was to be Jewish. To be Jewish was to be Christian. That there was some sense in which you needed to be Jewish in order to be Christian. It's what the first century church wrestled with. And had to figure out what does this look like, right? So why am I saying that? Well, because too often in our culture, these two religions are pitted against one another. When actually Judaism is fulfilled in Christ. Judaism is the foundation of what it means to be Christian. Jesus was a Jew. And everyone in the first century knew that. And assumed that to follow him was a sect of Judaism. Okay, so here is Apollos, a Jewish missionary, Jewish Christian missionary, to Ephesus from Egypt. And it says all these things about him. He's gifted, he's rooted in the scriptures, he's instructed in the Lord, which means someone's discipling him, and he's fervent in the spirit. Now I want you to recognize that all of those qualities are absolutely necessary for growth. The Bible tells us in 2 Paul's letters to Timothy and to the church in Thessalonia that in order to grow, you need to show yourself to be a worker who can rightly handle the word of God. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. He tells us, get in there. Get messy in it. Know the word. Breathe it in, right? Why? Because all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. Let me say that word one more time. All scripture. Thomas Jefferson is famous for having taken his Bible and clipped out the parts that he doesn't like. You know who else is famous for that? us. We all clip out the parts we don't like or that don't make sense to us. We just ignore them. When all scripture is God breathed, which is different than saying all scripture has the same impact in my life right now. Right? So when we look back to Leviticus, for instance, there's a reason why we're not taking uh, burnt offerings to church every Sunday. Right? There's a reason why we don't eat kosher. It's because the ceremonial laws of the book of Leviticus were fulfilled in Christ. But hear this, that was the practice of the principle. 
The principle was we are dead in our trespasses and sins apart from a blood sacrifice given to us by God, which is fulfilled in Jesus. That principle never changes. The practice grew. It grew over time. The revelation of what that was supposed to be, it grew over time. It became more and more clear. You following? So all Scripture is God-breathed, which means we need to do business with every word of Scripture. If we say the, the Bible is God's word, then we are not the authority that can stand over God's word and say, well, I don't like that part, or I don't like that part, or I really want to major in this part and not that part. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. The only Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament. Think about that. So often we cut off the Old Testament. We're like, oh, man, God seems like he was angry back then and, you know, maybe got up on the wrong side of the bed and there's a lot of weird stuff back there. doesn't make sense to me, so I don't really want to deal with that. The only Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament when he said that God is your Father who loves you. Please realize, friends, if we're coming to conclusions about what's in the Bible that contradict other parts of the Bible... The only person who's wrong is me. All right? So we're going to unpack what that looks like a little bit more in just a second. But 2 Timothy 2.2 also says that we are to instruct others. As we ourselves grow in the truth, we're to give it away. We call that discipleship or spiritual formation, mentoring, right? Whatever word you want to use. And then 1 Thessalonians says don't quench the spirit. So when you see that Apollos was fervent in the spirit, he was eager. It means he's walking in the spirit, right? So here's the challenge to Apollos, right? So he's rooted in the scriptures, but the challenge is he knew only the baptism of John. Now, if you understand the way that redemptive history played out, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come. And John the Baptist baptized people into a baptism of, who remembers the word? Repentance, thank you. A baptism of repentance, which is good and necessary. It's part of, it's rooted in the principle that says we need a savior. Right? But if all they know is the baptism of repentance, then they don't know the whole story. Because the whole story is that that baptism of repentance is what who entered into for us? Jesus. Jesus even repented for us perfectly. He entered in, carried our sin even to the cross and died there. And when he rose again, he won the right to give us his Holy Spirit. And so if you don't get to the Holy Spirit, you've missed the whole point. The whole point is God with man. The promise of Emmanuel, the reception of God into our hearts, and one day when there will be no separation between us and God. Are you following? There is something to be said about the progressive nature of Revelation that we see in our passage for this morning. And so you see that these two church planters, Priscilla and Aquila, pull him aside and actually begin to disciple him. They disciple Apollos, who's there as an evangelist, who's there to help plant the church, who's undoubtedly preaching and teaching, and they are pouring into him. And I want you to notice something here. This is not a small detail. It's not a small detail that Priscilla and Aquila are the ones pouring into Apollos. Let me explain. The first challenge we saw to the challenge was a challenge to Apollos. The second challenge is a challenge to the church. About what we see in this passage about the restoration of female value. 
Remember last week we talked that we were going to actually unpack some of this today, which is what we're going to do. Because what we, saw, what we saw last week, the beginning of, and what we see more this week, is that when it comes to how God created male and female to interact with one another, it's neither paganism nor is it patriarchy. Remember that phrase from last week? It's neither paganism nor is it patriarchy. Let me explain what that means and please listen for why that matters. So first, undermining paganism. There is a goddess, a patron goddess in Ephesus, which is where they're at, called Artemis. Artemis was known as Artemis the Great. As we'll see in next week's passage, they, re- they, they started worshiping her in a unique way in Ephesus because they received basically a meteorite that crashed in Ephesus with the black rock. And it looked like a woman, and they thought, all thought it was Artemis the Great. And so they made Artemis their patron saint and did some weird things about what Artemis meant for them versus what Artemis meant for the rest of the world. You see, in the Greek culture, Artemis was the huntress. She was fierce. She was independent. She didn't need man. She was unmarried and the perpetual virgin. She was the answer to the oppression of women. Here's the answer to the oppression of women. Oppress the men. You remember last week how we unpacked a little bit of that? How they would have these cult practices where men weren't even invited, where it was all about the women walking in power, exercising that authority, and how that was actually the opposite of what Scripture says. You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. The answer to oppression is not oppression. The answer to oppression is love and justice, friends. So what we see here is that in Ephesus, there was a unique manifestation of Artemis where she wasn't simply this huntress. Somehow she was also the goddess, the the mother of life and of fertility. How that happens and how those two things work together is above my pay grade. I have no idea how these two things somehow fit together, but they're both true at the same time. But what I want you to hear and see very clearly is that this is a culture that worshipped Artemis the Great. Listen to what they called her, Lord and Savior. Have you heard those terms before? Artemis is our Lord and Savior. No, she isn't. They said that, not us. Artemis, Lord and Savior. This is the culture into which we find the church breaking. It matters that we understand culture. Why? Because if we don't, then we start to say things like this. Well, this is just the plain reading of that text. Friends, there's no such thing as a plain reading of the text. Period. There's no such thing as a plain reading of the text. All there ever is is a contextualized reading of the text. We are either working really hard to understand their culture and the context of the Bible and how those things work together, or, which is called exegesis, or we're bringing our own presuppositions and thoughts, culture, expectations, and placing them on the text, which is called eisegesis. We're called to do exegesis. Doing eisegesis is wrong and dangerous. We must be a people who study the word to show ourselves a worker well-approved, rightly handling the word of God. So you see, this is the pagan uh, context. But it's also what's going on in our text is it's undermining the patriarchy. What do I mean by that? Well, in the patriarchal culture that the Jewish community found themselves in, there was an oppression of women. 
Women were owned like cattle. They had no rights. They were seen as lesser than the men in their culture, which was a complete diversion from God's direct creation design. What do I mean? Well, remember back to Genesis chapter 2. When God is creating, it's a kind of a zooming in on the garden scene. And he says he makes Adam out of the dust, and then he, he has Adam name all the animals, and he's looking for a suitable helper. And we all read that word as, hey, I need a little helper here. Yeah, come, come help me, little helper. And that word helper is actually azer in Hebrew. The word azer literally means life supporter. Literally means the one who sustains life on your behalf. Right? And so Azer is used more times in Scripture to refer to one person than any other. Do you know who that is? God. God is our Azer. And so when God makes Eve to be the Azer for Adam, we are not to read that as some sort of subjugation of Eve, as somehow she's down here. We're to read that as God made Eve exactly what Adam needed to sustain and multiply life. Which is why he doesn't take Eve from another pile of dust or from Adam's foot. Takes Eve from where again? Her ribs, or let me put it differently, her side. Because here is a sign of equality. They were made to be equal. But hear this, not equivalent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal God, equally God, but they are not equivalent to one another. God the Father doesn't die on the cross. God the Son doesn't come up with the plan. God the, God the Son, it's, it is His Spirit and the Father's Spirit that proceeds, but it's not Jesus in the flesh who lives in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. They each have a different role. And what you see from the very beginning in the Scriptures is that Eve is created to do one thing that Adam cannot do. You know what it is? Have babies. Have babies. Why? Because Adam and Eve were made in God's image. And as image bearers, God wanted us to be able to do what he does. God is the creator of life. So he wants us to create life. Is there any privilege bigger or better than that? To create life. When you see a little baby that looks like you, or when you hold a baby in your arms and you realize this is for me, you realize, oh my goodness, God meant what he said in Genesis chapter 2. So we are equal, but intentionally not equivalent. So the blurring of the lines between male and female that's happening in our culture today, friends, is directly contradictory to what the Bible actually teaches. And as we said last week, I'm going to say it again. It is intentionally designed to remove the only foundation that our kids have to stand on when it comes to their sexuality. We know who we are because the maker who wrote the handbook tells us who we are. Made in his image, infinitely valuable, loved just as you are, male and female. He created us. And so... You see God's original design in Genesis chapter 2, which is undermined by the culture, the patriarchal culture of the oppression of women, right? And so what you see in our passage for this morning is some of the fruit of what I call God's progressive revelation. By progressive, what I mean is unfolding over time. 
It unfolds over time. It's, it's God speaking into an ancient society with principles that will ultimately undermine their practices. Can I read that for us one more time? Speaking into an ancient society with principles that will ultimately undermine their practices. Let me explain, right, with two examples you see up on the screen. First of all, slavery. Slavery has been a part of our world since the very beginning. The, those who have the power oppress those who do not and bring them into slavery. It's happened all over the place. You see it in the book of Daniel, when Daniel is taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, when Jerusalem falls. And he has a pretty good slave life, right? He's made into a eunuch. That's not so good. But then he's, he's actually in the, the court of Nebuchadnezzar as a wise man and as one who gives, gets some good food to eat and has a pretty decent life. But then you also see in the history of God's people the enslavement of their people in Egypt, which was horrific, which included infanticide, which included all sorts of abuse, all sorts of abuse. So you see slavery as a part of the history of the world from its inception. And then you find weird passages in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, that say something like this, slaves obey your earthly masters as unto the Lord. What? Is God actually saying that slavery is a good thing? Is God actually encouraging us to own slaves? Absolutely not. Here's what he's doing. He's undermining the practice of slavery in that culture by shaping our hearts as his followers to overcome evil with, what was that, good, that word we said before? Good. It just slipped out. That's a Freudian thing right there, right? Like to overcome evil with good. And that's precisely what happened in that culture. God was never for slavery. In fact, when you see the movement of Scripture from garden to garden, it is from freedom, absolute freedom, to absolute freedom. And so the movement of Scripture has to get us there from beginning to end. And you see that play out in scriptures like the ones on the board here. Isaiah 61, when Jesus comes, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty for the captives. He's saying from the beginning, I'm here to set prisoners free to, so that slaves are now free. You're not a slave anymore when you become a, a part of the kingdom, which is precisely what Paul writes when he writes his letter to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. I mean, yes, Philemon was a slave owner. And the name of his slave was Onesimus. And Onesimus had escaped slavery and was with Paul. And Paul, Paul wrote to Philemon and said this, I could command you, I could command you to do the right thing here. But instead, I'm going to appeal to your heart. After all I've poured into you to help you to see what it means to be Christian, Slave, slave to death and sin, and now alive and free in Christ. I want you to apply that same principle to Onesimus, your brother. I write to you as one who is literally in chains because he was in prison. Do you see the movement of Scripture is in the direction of the principle of freedom? The same can be said when it comes to marriage principles, right? When it comes to polygamy, when you see Abraham have multiple wives and David have multiple wives, you're like, I guess we can have multiple wives, right? Wrong, right? First of all, 
read more of their stories. Having multiple wives never quite works out for them, okay? Like, um, but secondly, that was part of the patriarchal culture. And so from the beginning, it was not so. In Genesis 2, it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's not free to marry anyone else. He's now one with his bride. Why does that matter? Because Ephesians 5 says, and this is the great mystery. I'm showing you a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. The principle there is oneness, of faithfulness, of fidelity, of love that conquers all, that says no matter what, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm not giving up on you. Why? Because that's how Jesus interacts with his church. Same thing can be said when it comes to divorce. God says from the beginning, I hate divorce. I hate it. It's not okay. And yet you see Moses giving opportunities for the Israelites to hand out certificates of divorce. So they asked Jesus about this in Matthew. They say, well, what's the deal here? If you're saying that, that divorce is wrong all the time, didn't Moses give us the permission to give out certificates of divorce? Do you remember what Jesus says? It's because of the hardness of your heart. That's the only reason. It was never supposed to be like this. And then if you read Mark 10, that account there, Jesus says this. You want to talk about plain reading of the text? He says, divorce is always wrong. If you get remarried, you're living in adultery. It doesn't give a reason. No exception clause. Just says, divorce is always wrong. If you get remarried, you're living in adultery. That's the plain reading of the text. But what did we say? Is there a plain reading of the text? Is there ever a plain reading of the text? No. No, there is not. There's only ever a contextualized reading of the text. We, are, we have to dig down and find the principle that Jesus is playing out in, to, in terms of the audience that he's speaking to in that moment, both within the culture and within the Bible. And when you do, what you find is that same principle of oneness plays out with the divorce stuff. Because in Matthew's gospel, he says, except, except for porneia, except for infidelity. If there's infidelity, then, then you're free to go and be divorced and get remarried. Let me rephrase that. If there's hardness in the heart of one of the people in the, in the marriage, and, and you need freedom because that oneness is broken, you're free to go. Paul picks up on that in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, if they abandon you, you're free to go. Do you see the difference? It matters that we read things in context so that we can get the heart of God. The heart of God is not to punish the one who's already being abused and hurt. It always takes two to tango, but oftentimes when there's a divorce, unfortunately, there's one party that gives in. And seriously hurts the other side. And even there, please hear this. Even there, God says, if you'll let me, I will work a mighty work of grace in your marriage. But if you can't, you're free to go. Because the oneness principle has been undermined. Do you see what we're getting at here? This is progressive revelation played out over these various uh, life circumstances where God's not saying, I'm for slavery. No, he's saying, I'm going to undermine it very slowly. I'm for polygamy. No, I'm going to undermine it very slowly. He's undermining these things by the principle that he plants in that culture. Okay, 
What about when it comes to women in the church? The, the principle is equality principle. A movement from the garden to the garden, which we've already talked about. In marriage, here's what God says. Here's what God says to that very same church in Ephesus. To that very same church who, listen, the issue primarily is a pagan issue. It's a pagan issue. They worship, what's that goddess's name again? Artemis, who is fierce and independent and the oppressor of men. And so when God, when, when God, through Paul, writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, here's what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands. You know who he would not have to write that to? Anyone coming out of a patriarchal culture. That was a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to submit to my husband. My husband owns me. I don't have equal rights. We don't even worship in the same room. Like, of course I'm going to submit to my husband. But in that culture, that pagan culture, Paul's writing in a way that's undermining that pagan culture and saying to those wives who believe they've now been empowered by Artemis and who have brought into their Christian practices the practices of the worship of Artemis, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And now listen to what he says to husbands. If you women were upset about that one, husbands, buckle up. He says, and husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church, laying down his life for her. Let me translate that. To a patriarchal culture or any culture, but specifically a patriarchal culture where you own your wife, you know how someone would have heard that challenge? Wait, you want me to die for my farm animal? You want me to die for one of my possessions? God, through Paul, is saying, you've misunderstood who your wife is. You ought to die for her because she is your equal, because you love her, and because just as I laid down my life for you, you ought to lay down your life for her. And he says to husbands, you need to do it first. Let every fight in your marriage be a fight over who gets to die first, and you always insist on being the one, because that's what spiritual leadership is actually all about. And oh, by the way, before he speaks to either husband or wife in this passage, he says to both, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The principle there, friends, is a principle of oneness, where you see this equality coming out in marriage where they're absolutely equal but not equivalent. What about in the church? Well, friends, you have all these examples in Acts that forever I was taught in seminary to just ignore. You know why? Because Acts was viewed as a one-time event that we are to look at back there. And all we do is look at the epistles now to understand how to live as Christians. The problem with that, friends, is that the epistles are actually the, the spokes of the hub of Acts. Acts is the story. The epistles are the application of the story. Acts is the principle. The epistles are the practice, which is how you begin to make sense of why it seems like certain epistles say different things about the very same issue. And when that happens, you know what question we need to ask ourselves? Why? Do we understand the biblical context and do we understand the cultural context of what's actually being said here? And so with Priscilla, who's absolutely discipling Apollos, she's in a position of leadership. 
She's in a position uh, uh, where she's teaching and preaching and church planting. Remember, we talked about it last week. She and her husband, she's named first, by the way, which is not a mistake. She and her husband planted churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, and in Rome. They're leading, they're hosting home churches together. The principle is clear what's going on here. So when you look at the, like letters like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 that seem to say stuff like this. I do not permit a woman to teach or, have ex- or exercise authority over a man. In fact, I want all women to be quiet in the church. Those are Paul's words from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Where's Timothy pastoring at this time? Where's, he, where's this letter being received? Do you remember what city? Ephesus. Wait a second. Who, who planted the church in Ephesus? Priscilla and Aquila. Who, who did Paul, Paul plant the church with? Priscilla and Aquila. Is Paul saying, you know what? We, we got it really wrong with Priscilla. We messed up, guys. This was a big issue. Or is he saying something very different and very specific to that church at that time? Are you following me? Let me explain what I think he's saying. Because when he says this to a church that, uh, full of women who have just come out of worshiping Artemis, and are now regularly oppressing the men in their context. When he says to those women, I want you to be silent in the church, does that start to make a little bit more sense to us as to why Paul would write that to Ephesus and then write to Corinth about women prophesying in the church? Did he just contradict himself? Or did he have something very specific to say to Ephesus that's different than what he said to Corinth? Are you following? Then there's this other little verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that says this, And women, you will be saved through childbearing. What on earth does that mean? Right? If it happened way back when, you'd think, well, that's pointing to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is going to come through the seed of the woman. This is 30 years too late, friends. Jesus has already come. What does it mean that women will be saved through childbearing? Well, think about the context of Artemis. Who was the goddess Artemis? She was the perpetual virgin. She never had babies. And so who is Paul writing against again by saying, women, you be quiet and you go home and fill the earth with little image bearers of God Almighty. He's writing specifically against the teachings of Artemis. Only when, friends, we do our homework and dig down into the culture of what's going on in that passage, there's no such thing as a plain reading of the text. All there is is a contextualized reading of the text. And we're either going to bring our own context or we're going to work really hard to get into theirs. And from there, we then find a principle that we can apply to our context as a practice. Growing as a Christian is only possible when we do that. I want to share with you that our denomination, that our church, we're wrestling with these issues. We really are. Our denomination, Christian and Missionary Alliance, just this summer, um, voted to approve the ordination of women um, as, as pastors. Now, listen... Friends, this is something that I I think because of passages like the ones we just read, 
that says this matters. It matters that we actually let the Bible say what the Bible's intending to say and that we approach this with humility, right? So uh, I want to say this wholeheartedly, friends. There are God-fearing, Bible-honoring, loving brothers and sisters in Christ who have different opinions on this issue, which is why we must be humble when we're addressing and, and, and talking about all the issues we talked about, not just women in the church, but marriage and remarriage and divorce and, and everything else that, that we talked about today, right? Like we must be humble as we approach these things. Grace and humility is how we honor Jesus. But we're wrestling with it and we just say, will you pray with us? Will you pray and lean in with us as we try to walk faithfully after what God's doing and grow in what he's showing us to grow in? while at the same time remain rooted in the truth that actually sets us free. Because restoration of God's world is always both rooted and growing. Just to note the beginning of chapter 19, Paul does the same thing we just said, we just saw. Does the same thing. He comes to Ephesus when Apollos leaves and he finds the same sort of thing going on. He says, hey guys, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they are. And as they're baptized, they receive the gift of tongues and prophecy. And the cool part here is that there's 12 of these guys. I think that's my next. No, uh, no, it's not. I'll, I'll, it's coming in a second. But the third point for us this morning is simply this, friends. When we live this way, we grow. When we live this way, we grow. Listen, go back to the illustration that we talked about at the beginning. The big feet, right? You need deep roots. You need deep roots but you also need to be filled with the Spirit and willing to change. And as you have deep roots and you grow and change, what happens is the world around us changes. So Apollos didn't re- refuse to be discipled in this. He grew in it. And as he grew, it's at, at, after he was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, it says he goes out and he has power. He has power. The word has come alive to him in a new way. He sees Jesus in the text in a new way. He's excited to share about the the love and joy of Jesus in a new way. And it says he refutes those who are arguing with him from a Jewish perspective, a traditional Jewish perspective, about who Jesus could be. He refutes them, and he greatly encourages the believers that are there. Apollos grew, but it wasn't just Apollos that grew. The Ephesian believers grew, filled with the Spirit. And so this is what I was talking about before. There's 12 of them that are filled with the Spirit. That number is not by mistake. There's a message being sent here. He's saying the church is multiplying. The church is multiplying as the word goes out and there's a willingness to receive it and to grow in it to grow into this next level of spiritual intimacy and authority. One of my profs, Rob Rima, put it this way. He said, your next level of spiritual intimacy and authority is is on just the other side of your comfort level. We want to stay comfortable right where we're at in this nice little box because I'm safe here. And what God keeps doing to us as a church is pushing us outside of that box. And I'm thankful for that because I want to know more of him I want to walk in his authority, and I want us to grow in Christ together. So it's not just the Ephesians there, but the broader church also grows. Paul preached there for two years, and it says, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What a claim. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. As we're going to see next week, it was disrupting their entire culture because of the Jesus that they had come to believe in. Friends, this sort of growth is not just what happened back then. It's also what we see happening right now. 
in our midst. As we are rooted in Scripture and filled with the Holy Spirit, what are we noticing? What are we seeing? Well, there's a deepening intimacy that so many of us are actually enjoying with the Lord and with one another. I keep hearing testimony after testimony of people who are saying, I've never known the love of God like this. He's pushing me way outside my comfort zone. But I know him. I know he loves me. I know he's with me in the storm. And I'm going to stop at nothing. Uh, it's all yours, Lord. So this idea of surrendering. It's all yours, Lord. Take it. Take my life. Take my time. Take my talents. Take my treasures. Take it. I want you to be glorified. And we're growing in gifts and mission. We're seeing people come to the Lord. We're seeing, for goodness sake, hi, Frank. Frank was here at, at a funeral we hosted, and he works for the funeral home, and he came to church the next Sunday. So welcome, Frank. You picked a doozy of a Sunday to come, buddy. But we're watching the mission of Christ go out because we're changing. The way we even do things is growing, and it's reaching, listen, God's created design in each of us. We were all made, no matter what anyone believes. God, the, the maker, says we were all made to know his love and his intimate communion in our souls. That's why we run after every other kind of filler. But only he will satisfy. When we have that truth, man, what a privilege that we must exercise. And as we do, please don't miss this progressive glory revelation. We will move from glory to glory. It's Paul's words. As we learn to take away the veil that so often we hide behind so that we don't have to see God and he doesn't have to see the parts of us we think he doesn't see, which he already does. And when we remove that veil, it says our hearts open up and that glory that we are always made to know just multiplies. Let me give you three examples of where I see this in our church and then we're done. First, last Sunday with our money. Who loves when we talk about money at church? I see one false human being over here. <laughs> our treasurer. <laughs> and Will. <laughs> Thank you, brothers. Um, Nobody really likes to talk about money. Money's awkward, right? Money's uncomfortable. Money's all those things because our culture worships money. And money's a, a source of security and identity for us. Please don't misunderstand what's going on here. We should and must talk about money here because money's a trap for us that the God mammon sets so that all of us would fall in it. And today we say no in Jesus' name. What we saw at our congregational meeting, as I challenged all of us to see and to, to respond to the call, we need 40 families to give $25 more per week for us to meet our new aggressive budget. And I said, and I'm going to be the first. And one of my brothers, I'm not going to call out, one of my brothers stood up and said, and I'm going to be the second. Can I tell you what that did to my heart as a pastor? Can I tell you what that did in heaven? When the Lord heard that. Can I also tell you that after the service, another brother came up to me and said, I've got a funny story to tell you, Will. I was listening to the Lord in prayer and he said to me this week, he said, you know what? You need to give more to all souls. I want you to increase your giving by 1%. He did the math. He goes, oh, that's not too bad. There's only going to be $25 a week. 
God's got jokes. <laughs> but God is wonderful in the way he's already providing. Later that same day, I get a phone call from another brother who says, I heard your challenge today and I'm in. But I'm not just in for $25. I'm in for $50 a week because God's providing for me and I know he's calling me to do this and I'm in. Beloved, we are worshiping God with our money, which means where our treasure is, there our heart also is. Let's continue to give generously and sacrificially because he's worth it and because we need it. Not we all souls need it. We, each of us, need to give in order to say to that false God, not today, Satan. Last Monday night, we saw it happen there too. As we leaned in, listening, worshiping the king, as one of our teens bravely stood up here by herself, Elizabeth Wong, and led us in worship by herself, but never by herself. And we entered into the presence of God and delighted in him. And you know what God did? He moved in a way that healing and deliverance happened in our midst in unmistakable ways, in everlasting ways. And we rejoice, friends, because what the enemy of our souls told us we always just have to live with, Jesus said, not today. Today you're going to be free. And we leaned in, and there was freedom. Last example, all week, as we have mourned, and ached together as a church family for those that we have lost. It has been a hard week, friends. And can I just say it's gotten even harder? Um, Alliance University just closed its doors, which is where I'm a student for my doctoral program. But it's also where several in our midst, including our newest elder, Scott Wrights, was employed. And so now we're in a place where we have friends whose lives have been turned upside down. And we're wondering, Lord, what are you doing? But here's what we know. He is at work. We're going to trust that and believe that and pray for that for you guys and for everyone whose lives have been impacted with what was going on at the college. And we're going to watch God move, friends, because he's going to call us to surrender all the more and to sacrifice all the more and to enter in all the more. And you think, oh, my gosh, that's a lot. No, no, no. You don't understand. The principle of the scriptures is this. If you reap, if you sow rather generously, you will reap generously. God is calling us into a season where he wants us to sow into one another's lives generously and sacrificially. And what is his promise? That we will reap generously together. We know that and we believe that. And we are watching God transform us through this. This, friends, has always been the Messiah's mission. I quoted from this passage before, and I just want to have it in front of you so you can see it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Listen to the growth language, the change language here. To proclaim the liberty, liberty to the captives. Notice it's rooted in the spirit and in the truth, but it's change and growth. Liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, listen, oaks of righteousness. What do oaks have? Roots and big branches. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And you think I'm about to stop there. But all of this is for a purpose, friends. The fruit of his glory in our lives is simply this. They, us, shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Do you hear the promise of God? As we welcome his spirit in, as that spirit does a deep work of rooting us in the truth, and as we say yes to growing and changing in the ways that only Jesus can bring into our lives, the world around us is going to experience renewal. Renewal. It's the very purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. It's why we're here, friends. And it's what God's called us to, even as a particular church here at All Souls. So here's the, the question. This is it. Do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? Well, are you rooted? Are you rooted in the truth? Are you pursuing that intimacy? Is this the goal of your life? And are you willing then to change as God grows you and us together. This is our future, friends. It's who God's called us to be. It's who God's calling us to be. It's where he's taking us. Let's lean in. Deep roots, big branches. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for this, this passage for what it is, Lord. It's different than other passages we've looked at. It's challenging us to the core of our being and thinking about things in our lives that maybe we need to rethink. It's challenging us to see, Lord, how to lean in and let your scripture actually say what it says as opposed to what we've maybe been taught it says. But it's also, Lord, challenging us as individuals to have a very different set of priorities. Lord, to be rooted like that tree planted by streams of living water that you talk about in, in Psalm chapter 1. To have deep roots that constantly live in your presence where we find nourishment, Lord. Where we find deep soul satisfaction. Where we hear your voice through your Holy Spirit reminding us every day that we are indeed sons and daughters of the living God. That there is nothing to fear, but that our calling has always been one to share in your sufferings, that we might also share in your glory. So Jesus, we pray for a fresh filling of that Holy Spirit this day. As we wrestle, Lord, together with what it looks like to show one another grace, to walk humbly with our God, to hold fast to you as you hold fast to us. And Lord, to lay down 
all of our presuppositions about way, the way your world should be and instead to let you be the one who tells us the way the world is. God, would you minister to us today? I thank you for every person you brought here and those who are watching online, Lord. How you have spoken and challenged each of us, Lord. And I pray that these seeds that you've planted would only grow. That you'd be glorified this day in our lives and in our hearts. Jesus, we do want to grow. We want to be more like you. We want to be more alive. We want to know more of your love. We we want to walk in more of your authority. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. We want to speak and live as those who, Lord, fight for justice for the oppressed. We want to see prisoners set free. We want to see the captives, Lord, set free. We want the year of the Lord's favor to just continue to pour out over us and through us. So we say again freshly, yes. Here's our yes, Lord. Have your way. Shape us and guide us, we pray. There is one name above them all. We find our security in that name now. Even as we say amen in Jesus' name.